Welcome to episode number 64, Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm Justin Gordon, your host, and in this episode, we have Matt Jung, who is the director and co-creator of The Fort. And if you're not familiar with The Fort, it is a resort-owned and operated co-working space designed for innovators, entrepreneurs, and business leaders, as well as remote locals to be able to work at the base of Mammoth Mountain Slopes, which is such a cool cool place to be, and is actually the first uh, resort co-working space in the country and is ground zero for Mammoth's new initiative, which is to drive the economic growth of Mammoth as well as the surrounding area by driving entrepreneurship. Prior to the fort, Matt was the founder and CEO of Wellen, which was acquired by Huckberry. And Wellen is a premium lifestyle brand, originally started as selling surfboards and more of a surf-focused company, but then grew from there. And actually, Matt was involved in a worldwide licensing deal with the global retailing powerhouse Uniqlo and really grew Wellen into an internationally recognized brand. The show notes for this episode are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review. Takes only a minute or two and really would appreciate that. And the Just Go Grind podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, basically everywhere. And without further ado, here is my interview with Matt Jung, serial entrepreneur and director of The Fort. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, happy to have you on. And there's so much to dig into today. So we'll just get right to it. So first off, I'm just curious as to what is The Fort and how did you get involved with this project? Yeah, so The Fort is a co-working space in Mammoth Mountain. We have one on the mountain and we have one in downtown. And it is kind of an interesting project because it started a couple years ago, about three, actually before I even got involved. And basically, it was around the concept of innovation and entrepreneurship, basically how to help drive the economic vitality in a mountain community, which is kind of yeah. an interesting topic, you know, specific to resorts, obviously. Like, how do you attract businesses and entrepreneurship? And originally, the team at Mammoth kind of took a, a look at it from the point of like corporate sales. So how do you drive like bringing like corporate offsites? And how do you do potentially maybe like an institute around entrepreneurship in Mammoth? But what they kind of ended up with was the idea of settling on co-working. And that's actually when I got involved. And I got involved with a good friend of mine, Michael, who I went to college with. And he had worked at Mammoth in the past and really was... He really understood the culture of the mountain from being there. And I brought a bunch of entrepreneurial experience to the table and starting things. And so that's kind of like how we got involved. But it really just started as this kind of nebulous idea uh, around co-working. And so... The question that we kind of posed with the mountain, and they really posed, was do ski resorts have a responsibility to promote local initiatives that spur economic growth, diversification, and development beyond their standard resort operations? Which is like a total like mission state <laughs> corporate byline, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, totally, right? I, even saying it, it's like, you know, geez, I sound like my dad. But... You know, the CEO at the time, Rusty Gregory, who's now the CEO of Altera Mountain Company, which is the parent company of Mammoth, his response was basically like, a strong town was a strong mountain. And it kind of resonated with me. I grew up going to Mammoth and like, that was the place that we went as a family and now kind of getting involved with this co-working initiative and with kind of the diversification of the local economy. It was really interesting. And 
there was already a few things happening that I think really helped all of this come together that had nothing to do with Mammoth particularly as a resort. And that was that there was already a little bit of a local movement towards co-working. There was a company called The Mountain Lab that was building out a co-working space in town that it was really kind of extra desks in their space that they were offering as co-working, but like important. And it showed that people were interested. The local government was already actively like trying to bring businesses to the town. And so they were doing a lot of programs to kind of bring digital nomads or how do we like get you to relocate your company with tax incentives so that they could really like show that, hey, it's possible to live in Mammoth and raise a family and do that. And that was important, you know, because if they weren't, if the local government and the community wasn't bought in, like no one was ever going to care. about it. <laughs> right. You had to have them first at the beginning of it, for sure. Well, 100%. And then the last piece that was like, I think the almost the most instrumental is that from the American Jobs and Recovery Act, they had gigabit internet from a fiber optic line that was run from San Francisco <laughs> down through Mojave and back up, which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so I have more internet in Mammoth than I do in LA? And it was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. That, that is wild. And with it though, so like you mentioned, you've been going to Mammoth for, for years. So I mean, was that one of the main reasons why I wanted to get involved? I'm just curious as like why specifically for you, you really want to be a part of this project. Yeah, like I felt a connection with the mountain from growing up there and skiing basically since I was five. I also, you know, as an entrepreneur, felt this it was a really interesting project because I've, I mean, it's weird to say, but like I've never worked at a company, you know, in a traditional sense, you know? Right, <laughs> right. You just keep starting companies. <laughs> yeah. And, and I've always kind of been a lone wolf in that sense and kind of just, forged my own path. And the opportunity to work with Mammoth on this, I thought was really interesting because, you know, Mammoth is like big behemoth in California, especially. And yeah. that's where people go to vacation, right? Oh, for sure. It was a huge and, class trip I didn't go on, but there's many people that went on at USC as well. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and people have these this connection. It's a place that their parents went to or, you know, they went when they were a kid. And I think it was like really interesting, the idea that you know, what is the future of mountain towns with climate change? Or what is the future with mountain towns like uh, in good snow years? And, and that was such a nebulous, really difficult problem. And I think as an entrepreneur, a lot of times you're chasing these like really impossible things and trying to solve them. And I think this project felt very big and impossible and hard and complicated. And there were a lot of feelings about it. And people had different opinions. And that was kind of interesting to me, personally. Yeah, I know, it does sound interesting. I remember when you, you mentioned it, it was in an email, and I was like, wow, yeah, I, I definitely want to talk more about this because it is curious, one from a co-working perspective, but then like you said, with the mountain towns and where it is this destination at a certain time of the year, and then other times it's, it's obviously not the same amount of people coming there. It's like, how do they drive the economic growth? And you, had, you talked about that a little bit early on here. How do you think these co-working spaces then are driving economic growth, especially specifically at Mammoth? Well, I think like that, it's like a perfect segue because I think what we realized in looking at the other constituents that were already there. So the town, the, you know, local government, the community, the gigabit internet was that the way that we could kind of bring all of these things together and actually contribute was by actually building like a physical place, like the hub that could become the glue that actually brought all of those things together. And I thought that was really kind of exciting because it's not, you know, very often, it just so naturally comes together in some ways. And with that then, so 
that's a way to kind of bring it all together into one place, but literally having a physical location. And then for you, what were you doing or what have you been doing to help grow that and like get the word out about, about the fort then? Yeah. So originally it was really just word of mouth. So we kind of, you know, they say it like you build it and they will come. <laughs> yep. That's what we did and no one came and it was horrible. I mean, we basically built this beautiful space. It cost a ton of money. We had a space in town. And like I said, we had a space on the mountain and no one was using it. And that was really interesting because it was like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, there's already this community. There's already this push. The town and the local chamber are pushing companies. They say they need places to work. We built it. And, and so what we kind of realized was we needed to actually look inward towards what Mammoth was already really good at. You know, it's this destination, it's this resort, it's this place where you go to have these experiences. And what we decided on was the best way to get the word out and the best way to kind of like tell people about the fort was to actually try to tie it back into the mammoth ecosystem. And so we created a pass product. We created the Fort Icon membership. It was the ski industry's first subscription season pass. And that was really kind of cool to be a part of, you know, being a part of creating something in the ski industry as a longtime participant. And so by creating the pass, what we did is we tied it into like the behavior that the guests and the people coming to Mammoth were already doing. And what our theory was, was that, well, these people are already coming to ski. And if we can give them a way so that they can access co-working for free, or the way we kind of phrase it is they can access, they can get co-working and then they can get a pass for free. It would enable them to actually start to use it and understand how to use it in the ethos that is mammoth. If that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, that makes complete sense. It's just it's it's well integrated to where they already know how to do. They're used to buying passes. They're used to doing this, and it's like okay, then you just you have this as well, where you can use the co-working space. It seems to make yeah complete sense. Totally. And it was almost like in a weird way, it's like by looking at these people and looking at this membership group as normal pass holders, and then offering them this additional service, almost a business center of the future, instead of looking at it like a millennial and saying, oh, everyone wants co-working and they want coffee and they want all this cool shit. <laughs> right. And doing it kind of the opposite way, it actually made perfect sense and it really clicked. And that's when I think everything really started to... I don't know if take off is the right word, but like it really built momentum. And... That was about a year and a half. Uh, yeah, a year and a half ago, we created the pass. And it's built every month. It's increased our usage every month. And it's really been great because friends are now telling their friends about the pass and getting them in the ecosystem and saying, Hey, I can come work in Mammoth and I'm going to spend a couple extra days. And so that was really interesting. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was wondering about next. Like, how much does this influence, you know, having the pass? And you said it's been growing, which is great. You know, how much does that influence people either doing more trips, say more trips to Mammoth, or there being longer stays? Like, I don't know how much you know about the numbers with that, or like, I'm curious as to that part of it too. So that's actually really interesting. That's one of the big things we're, is kind of on our task book for this month, is now that we've gotten far enough along in the season, being it's May, we're comparing this year now to last year as our first kind of full, not full seasons, but a large portion of the season. What we're seeing in kind of early data is that it almost looks like the past product is increasing usage almost at least 50%, which is huge for daily use. Now, it'll be interesting to kind of see where those numbers end up when we kind of get the final data. 
But it really is showing that people are staying more. And the other thing that's fascinating too is that one of the things that people were worried about when we created this was, oh, people are still just going to come on the weekend. They're not going to come during the week. And it's really not going to change anyone's behavior. And what we're finding is that almost 75% of our usage is Monday through Friday. And it drops significantly once the weekend hits. And it's really showing that people are either coming up early, they're staying longer, or they're just coming up in the middle of the week to work for a day or two, half days, ski half days, which is kind of amazing. That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's something that could be used, I mean, obviously any mountain in theory. And Mammoth is, like you said, so popular and so such an iconic place. What else, I mean, with the co-working space, then obviously you have a physical space where you have people brought together there. I've seen some things on like events in Mammoth. Like how much does that play a part into that as well? Yeah, so that was kind of the next phase is that we realized that we have this great space, we've created this great product, they can kind of interact with it. But now what we need to really do is build out more of the community in the sense of like the events. Like how can we basically leverage these things to create entrepreneurial meetups, which is something that we did. We created a speaker series where people came and spoke. People from Tesla, people in the local community. We let the Chamber of Commerce use the fort for events to kind of engage the community even more. And it's really been important for us as we think of the, I guess the longevity of the program beyond me, because I'm here forever. Eventually, you know, it has to grow beyond that. And the idea that building a community is ridiculously difficult. I mean, no one that has ever tried to do it has, I think, would ever say that it's easy. I wouldn't even say that we've really figured it out perfectly at all. But what you really need to do is you need the community to start to kind of like take the torch and run on their own. And continue to build the community on their own without you. And so one of the things that we've really done is tried to help kind of from a community standpoint and an event standpoint, push that forward. So how can we have find, you know, local stakeholders, people in the community who want to take on doing the meetup or doing the happy hour and can take that run with it. And it's not a resort thing at all, but it's super integral. And then On the flip side, what we can do as the resort, which we're really good at, is start to create events and programming with companies, with groups. Like There's a really great event that Silicon Valley Bank does where they bring up a bunch of executives and they ski for three days and they fly everybody up chartered and it's amazing and really cool deals happen and interesting people meet each other. And Mammoth, that's not our event, that's their event. But through this program, we've approached corporate sales in a little bit of a different way to create and curate really interesting experiences for CEOs and for business leaders so that we can have these interesting discussions. Like we have a great event called the Summit Summit that comes that brings VCs from Europe and then VCs and entrepreneurs from California together. And it's, you know, 30 people and they're skiing and they're talking and they're speakers. And it's really interesting to kind of see that stuff start to build. And Once again, it's not our event, it's their event and they've created it and they have their community, but we become this really interesting conduit. Right, and with that then, with other partnerships, I'm curious, with your time spent with the Fort, how much of it is, you know, partnerships versus how much of it is, I don't know, the community thing, how are you spending your time in terms of working on this project? Honestly, it it changes a lot. It depends. Like right now, so it's May, the season's kind of slowing down. We're thinking about 
2020. We're thinking about next year. So a lot of it is data analysis, looking at... We're doing NPS surveys right now for the first time to see what people think. We're looking at our corporate sales strategy to figure out what is the future. You know, in April and May, we're doing a lot of pass sales. That's when people buy their ski passes. And so I would say it's very fluid, and which is I like, but it's bouncing around. It's going from corporate stuff to doing community stuff to doing putting out a fire because something weird happened that no one ever thought could or doing customer service and helping kind of navigate that, which is really interesting. It's been cool. Yeah. And you mentioned obviously growing the community and anyone growing community. It's difficult. It can be challenging. I'm curious as to what other things have been the most challenging with growing the fort so far. Originally, you know, one of the things that was really challenging that I didn't expect, but now looking back, makes a lot of sense. And I think it was just that I had never worked in a corporate environment was that really building bridges internally at Mammoth was really... It wasn't hard once we started doing it, but it needed to be done because people just didn't understand what the fort was. I mean, you're talking about an organization that's been around for a long time that is rooted in actual operations. I mean, they move, you know, they're doing snowcat, like they're doing ski patrol, they're doing avalanche control, there's ski school. I mean, everything involved for the most part is physical, like you see it. And so we kind of describe it as, you know, if you don't see someone moving snow from one pile in the parking lot to another pile in the parking lot, you kind of don't understand what they're doing. And (laughs) we were the kings of, and as far as everyone was concerned, of doing nothing because they couldn't really see what was happening. And so the biggest challenge in the beginning was really getting everyone internally on board and meeting with the department heads and meeting with the executive team and really kind of like showing the vision and explaining it and getting people excited. And now I would say people get it. They see that the membership loves it and that they want this product and that it's integral to their experience with the mountain. But that was kind of difficult and a little unexpected for me. But looking back, it makes perfect sense. Well, yeah. And with this, there's obviously multiple different stakeholders involved, right? I mean, there's the mountain, like you said, people who have been there, the local community and then on the outside, there's just a lot of different people involved. And so clearly that's never going to be the easiest thing. I mean, it's hard enough when it is like just a company, just one company there. Like, and then you have all these different people involved. It's, it seems like that would be quite the challenge. And what do you think is kind of the next steps for you? You mentioned some of it, but what are some of the next steps for the fort moving forward? Yeah, I mean, tying the next steps into like still a challenge is like, I think the next steps and the biggest challenge even more than the integration was how do we show that we can actually scale? You know, how do we really build this thing to a meaningful place? And I think that in the short term, that's our big focus. How can we continue to build the community? How can we continue to grow events, both brought in through corporate sales and also spearheaded by the community that we can help support? How can we continue to add services, you know, and meet our members' needs and listen to them and really make sure that it's a two-way relationship? It's not just us telling people, this is what you want and this is what we're going to give you. And then really showing people that they, if they want to you know, work remote, that it's possible. You can do it in Mammoth. You can move your company to Mammoth. You know, and that's just like, I would say near term. I think in the long term, we're talking like five years, maybe. I think the goal is like, how can we attract a thousand full-time equivalent jobs? And it's something we talk about a lot internally. So we kind of view a full-time equivalent job as if, you know, you come and you work at Mammoth in the fort for one day, that would be one day. And I think I broke it down and it ends up being like 200,000 days is what we need for a thousand full-time equivalent jobs to come to Mammoth. So how can we do that? How can we show people that you can stay a couple extra days or you can move your company for part of the year 
and get a lot of work done. Or if you're a developer and you're working on a project and you want to have a hackathon with your team, well, come here and do it. And you can be totally removed from all the distractions of LA and San Francisco or New York. And you can focus and also have time to relax and think and reflect and be outside, which we're finding is, we think is really valuable. And then beyond that, how do we basically take this model and expand it? So Mammoth was purchased a year and a half ago and rolled into a company called Altera, which has 23 resorts that it owns and operates, and then partnerships with another 16, I believe. How can we interact with those communities? How can we either partner with co-working spaces that already exist in those resort towns? Or how can we build the co-working space? And how can we expand this from Mammoth to becoming a North American thing that really like ties in all of these people who are doing all this really interesting remote work or these companies who want to not be in San Francisco or LA and they want to move and operate somewhere else. And I think that that is kind of this bigger idea is what is the future of mountain towns? And I think the Ford and what we're working on is part of that conversation, maybe a large part in the short term and can have really meaningful impact in terms of local economies and the diversification of jobs. And I think that's exciting. Oh, it's definitely exciting. And you mentioned there's many different you know resorts that Terra Mountain Company has as well. But even with looking just at Mammoth, there's two locations now, one downtown Mammoth and also on the mountain. Do you see it expanding like literally bigger spaces or like more spaces in the same city? I'm just curious on how you see that because obviously there's a limit to a physical capacity in one place. Yeah, no, I think the downtown space that we have right now is great. It's about 4,000 square feet. I would say sometimes it gets more full than others, but it hasn't really ever peaked and gotten over capacity, I would say. In terms of the on-mountain space though, so we've had it for three years now and every single year we've had it, we've doubled it in size and moved it to a different place to accommodate more people. I think we finally have the right size for the main lodge location now. And it's about in a thousand square feet and has a couple phone booths in it and a conference room and a bunch of desks. And it's awesome. I think if anything, we'd probably... They have another lodge called the Canyon Lodge, which is on the other side of the mountain. It would be great to build a space there over time to show that people can... You know, depend. You don't have to just go out of the main lodge. The Canyon Lodge sees, I think, even more traffic. And so building another fort location there could be really great. I think the big thing, though, that we have to really prove to Mammoth as a company is should they put money towards building more locations or expanding locations? Because at the end of the day, I mean, there are a ton of different departments from you know operations to lift maintenance that are all looking for money. There's a ton of different ways that they can use their capital expenditures. And is the Ford the best one? And I think that they took a huge risk putting money that could have gone towards other projects that needed it in something that really they didn't know what was going to happen and I think we've shown that it was worth it, but I think we have another hurdle in terms of building the community, building the member base to until we really can push further. Yeah, and I wonder, what, I mean, with that, I always kind of gear towards the combination of online and offline. So obviously you have these events and things that will take place at the fort, but you know, does someone connect offline and say, well, yeah, we're going to meet up you know, in here or connecting online, I should say, and saying, well, yeah, we're going to meet up at the fort and we're going to have a weekend at Mammoth. Like, I wonder what kind of connections there as well in terms of building community there would be. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that we're exploring right now is whether or not we want to build like a Slack community of yeah. Fort members that can communicate with each other, get tips, 
get restaurant advice and ski together. And if that would be valuable, I don't know that people need another Slack channel that they want to be. (laughs) But I think your kind of thought is along those same lines is what else can we do? And I think my approach generally is less is more. I think we're all inundated with way too much tech. We're inundated with way too many options and giving people another option that isn't amazing isn't really the best idea, but there is some way to do it. And I I don't know that we've really figured that out yet, but it's definitely something we're thinking about. How can we help facilitate these members building connections? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, like you said, less is more potentially with as many different distractions there are here, but even, you know, simple things like Facebook groups, you'd be amazed. Even like I'm in podcasting Facebook groups, it's like, oh, wow, this is actually really useful, even though I didn't think I would use it. And now here I am checking it all the time. So you never, you never know, I guess. And with all this stuff you're working on, obviously with the fort, there's clearly a reason why you're qualified to help with the fort and it's your background in multiple different companies. So I wanted to get into that as well. And with that, did you always know you'd be an entrepreneur? Honestly, no. But if you asked my mom, she would say yes. Why is that? Simple would be that when I was a little kid, I would sit on the corner and I found all the shiny rocks and I would try to sell them on the corner while other kids were selling lemonade. <laughs> That's priceless. <laughs> so yeah, I think I always wanted to kind of beat to my own drum. I didn't necessarily know until I was more really in college, but now looking back in high school, was already starting to take more of an entrepreneurial journey. And that is always kind of what interested me is really being able to like have control of my time, have control of the people that I work with, create things, build projects. I always find that really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the many appeals of entrepreneurship for people and having that control. And so then how did you decide? So there's a different timeline of events. There's different companies with Grover and Wellen and Sunny. Like the first one. So I don't know. Well, I say first, not selling rocks. Let's just say, (laughs) we'll say Grover. Like how did that come to be? Well, the first was actually Wellen. So, it was Wellen, okay. So I made surfboards in my parents' garage when I was in high school. And me and the kids, that, or the kids, <laughs> they're all old now. Uh, me and the guys <laughs> I with, we surfed them. And it wasn't anything formal. We weren't selling them to make money. It was kind of just a fun thing. And when I went to college, I kept doing that. And it really was organic. You know, I was making surfboards. And then all of a sudden, I met a, a shaper and... He, hired him to make the surfboards because I realized, oh man, I'm not that good at making surfboards. But I really like this and I like the business aspect of it. And this is kind of interesting. And once I hired him to make a couple boards on kind of a contract basis, I then kind of put some attention into apparel. And it really... Not to sound like like a little idiot, but it kind of came because, well, I, that's what surf companies do. They make apparel. It, it wasn't... I want... It was like this apparel dude that you know was into fashion and went to design school or anything like that. It really just was, well, we're a surf company, I think. So what's the next logical thing? Well, we'll make printed t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, what's the next logical thing? Naturally, you're going to go to apparel because that's something else you can sell. It's like, yeah, let's do that. Totally. And it was kind of an interesting moment too, you know, in terms of the industry. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but like it was dominated by basically like Quicksilver, Billabong, Hurley, all the brands can felt and look the same, big logos, long board shorts, kind of gross. And there was this like opportunity to do really cool, artistic, you know, interesting tees. And that's kind of what I did. So how did the company then grow over time? You started, you know, how did it grow over time then? Like, I'm just curious, what fueled the growth? 
honestly, sheer determination and not for some reason giving up. I mean, it wasn't like it just worked. I mean, this was all pre-direct-to-consumer, pre-Shopify or online. I mean, we made some shirts. I sold them out of the basically the back of my car or at, in my college. And people kind of bought them because I think they felt bad for me, probably. I mean, it wasn't like they were that great if you look back. There was nothing that innovative about it. And then it just like, all right, well, now let's make some shirts that are a little bit better. And make better designs. And I think that drive to keep pushing and not give up and continually evolve and get better pushed into us getting into a local surf shop and then pushed us into getting to a local skate shop, which then led to a larger surf shop and a larger skate shop and led to an account that was online called swell.com, which was one of the larger... Well, I think at the time, probably the largest online surf retailer. And they bought all of our shirts. And that started to make it feel, and it just every year. I'm so at the time I was working at a summer camp in the summer to make money. I was doing odd jobs like construction for my uncle. I was working with kids with special needs, uh, doing group experiential therapy in the afternoons. I was starting well in, and so it's not like oh I you know had a bunch of money and it just worked and we hired this great team. It was a grind, and I just didn't really stop. And it just kind of naturally evolved into what became Wellin, which was this really fun, awesome surf ramp. And it evolved over time. You say you kept going and you mentioned we. So who is the team? Who's helping you build this company? So originally it was just me. I say we because I don't like to talk about myself and kind of the, I'm alone and I'm handling this. <laughs> there's something that there's always more people to the story. It's not just one person. Early days, there was just one person and it was just me. But over time, you know, I brought on good friends would help me. I mean, people lent a hand. They helped with graphic design or they helped me screen print or they helped with delivering stuff. And then it was, you know, we had a little bit of money so we could hire a graphic designer part time. And then that just kept evolving and growing. And oh, now our sales are a little bit more. So let's hire a salesperson, you know, to do sales on the road. And so it kind of organically grew in that way. And at the end, we ended up having. Well, not the end, but at the peak, I should say, we had 12 people all over the country working on the company, which was really fun. We were doing production in Los Angeles and it was amazing. That's awesome. And with that, was there ever any point where you're like, wow, you just like step back and like, you know, it grows over time organically. And then eventually you have a company with 12 employees. Like, is there any point where you're just kind of looking at it, like, was this kind of like, this is super cool that we created this? Like, I'm curious. I, a lot, actually. I still actually look back and I think that it was kind of amazing. I mean, I didn't know anything about starting a company and we figured it out and it just it worked and it didn't work. And I think the biggest thing that was really like this aha moment was we t- we ended up doing this really cool worldwide licensing deal with Uniqlo, the brand out of Japan. And selling clothes internationally, I would say, was one of the like coolest moments when people from Japan or people in Europe were buying clothes that said our name on it and they were you know, sending us Instagram messages or sending us pictures, that was really like, I could pinch myself still thinking. <laughs> That's next level. I mean, yeah. <laughs> next level. And it was the most amazing thing. And that I think was pretty cool. How did that come about? Because obviously you're selling in the US and then you eventually get this licensing deal with then you're selling, you know, internationally. How does it come about even? So it's actually a really great story because you know those like, emails that you get from Africa that are like, oh, I'm the prince and like, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. 
honestly, that's kind of how it came about. We got this really weird email out of the blue and it was professionally written and like really, I mean, awesome, but it was just, it felt too good to be true. It felt like uh, someone's trying to swindle us and there's no way this is real. No one just emails us and asks, Hey, we want to do this interesting licensing deal. And they, everything was in yen and we were trying to do the conversions and figure it out. And we were adding it all up. And it was at the time for us, we weren't a, we were not a huge company. It was a lot of money. And it's like, oh, there's no way. This is crazy. And I emailed them back just kind of on a whim saying, Hey, I was in Hawaii at the time. Hey, I'm, yeah, this sounds great. Let us know what you want to do. We ended up getting on a Skype call, going through the whole thing. They sent a, I think it was 50 pages long contract with all the details of the licensing. They were going to own the art. They were going to print on it. This is how the everything was going to work. It was so far out of the realm of anything that I'd ever been a part of. And so we called the lawyer. The lawyer told us, don't sign this. This is crazy. They <laughs> rip you off once you send them the art. There's really no way you're going to ever be able to fight it. And then after the meeting, kind of circled back up and said, Hey, unofficially, you should totally sign this because honestly, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? They rip you off and they make a bunch of shirts and say your name on it in another country. They could do that anyways now. Yeah. You might as well just roll the dice and see if it works. And so... He said, you know, just ask them for like half the money up front. See what they do. You know, the worst thing they could say is no. And we did. And they wired us a bunch of money. <laughs> we sent them a bunch of art files. And it ended up being this really amazing partnership. And it was kind of the pinnacle, I would say. At that point, it was the pinnacle of where we were as a brand. And we definitely like fell hard after that. But that was kind of... Do you know how they found you? Do you ever ask? They found us because at the time we were selling in a store in Japan called Beams, which is a really cool, fancy department store that's all over Japan. And it's kind of like a Barney's in, L- uh, in the US. Yeah. And we did a cool collaboration with them and they were selling a bunch of t-shirts and I think they had a window display at the time and they saw us there and had seen us in some other stores and just reached out. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, you just never know, I guess, then what exposure you get and someone, re- you know, someone finds you and there you are. Now, then you have an international uh, licensing deal out of the blue, which is just wild, by the way. And you mentioned kind of like the fall afterwards, like what happened then from there? We kind of, I mean, we were bootstrapping this company and we just, we hit some big missteps. I mean, we had some manufacturing issues. We had a factory who ruined an entire season of our summer board shorts and product and then basically disappeared and declared bankruptcy. So there was nothing we could do after we'd already paid them. But we couldn't ship the product or make money off of it. And it was our largest order ever. And at the same time, we had a couple retailers cancel their orders entirely for no reason last minute. And then we had a few stores that didn't pay us from prior seasons and declared bankruptcy. And it was like... I mean, we started where I started well in at basically right when the economy hit rock bottom. You know, that I graduated in 2008, started well in 2007. And so this was all kind of the aftermath. You know, it took a little while, but some of these stores maybe were propped up by loans that they got or something else. And it just, the cards fell. And there was really no way to do it. I had to basically let go of the entire team, which was honestly the hardest thing I've ever done. And it was just me and my COO, Bubba, who stayed on and helped me kind of build a new plan. And basically what we did is we built a new model. We built kind of a forensic uh, analysis of the business, which I don't think... I actually think was probably the best thing I've ever done 
professionally in terms of me understanding entrepreneurship and the business because we took a holistic view at everything we'd done for basically seven years, eight years, and figured out why, what we did well, what we did wrong, and then created a new plan based on all that information and learning and tried to shop it around as a potential investment. And at the same time, relaunched the brand as a pretty much exclusive direct-to-consumer brand on our own site. And we're slowly growing and it was kind of working, um, but not really enough like we were. And ended up selling, basically selling the IP and the brand in lieu of finding an investor to keep going and really decided to kind of close the chapter. That is a lot to go through. I mean, wow. I mean, to have to fire employees and, and everything with that. And you mentioned coming up with then the plan, stepping back. I, how long of a process was that to kind of evaluate and look at where the company was at and figure out what the next steps were? We spent months. Months. It was amazing. It was honestly, I look back at it as probably one of the most fun things that I've ever done in the sense that there were no distractions. It was perfectly clear what we had to do. We had all the information in front of us and it was just going to take time. And I had such a blast working with Bubba on it because we really just got to dive in. It's like totally, while it was probably the worst moment in professionally of my life, I look back on that particular exercise as being, I think, one of the defining moments in terms of as an entrepreneur, it's, it's not easy to quit, but it's a lot easier to quit than it is to have to spend three months creating a 50-page document that describes why you failed. And I think that that it's important sometimes to kind of like look inward. And I was so young when I started Wellin. I didn't know so much. And I think it was important to reflect on that. Yeah. And knowing that, and then you're eventually acquired by Huckberry. And I'm curious as to then going into Sunny, just to make sure I'm saying Sunny is the way to say it, right? Sun. Sun. How did you decide to start that? You know, I didn't decide to start that. I was approached by a good friend of mine who we started it together. And he really had the idea. And I, at the time, had been working on, honestly, the Mammoth Project and a couple other little things, consulting-wise, and having a good time, but definitely had the entrepreneurial itch still. And I don't think that will ever go away, it turns out. (laughs) It's lifelong, yeah. It's brutal. (laughs) He kind of approached me with this idea around like men's skincare and you know the idea that there was no really good option for men and these companies were filled with marketing jargon and bad ingredients and it was kind of confusing and there was this like opportunity to maybe create something that was simple that was easy for people to understand and that's kind of how it it started really from him pushing me on the idea asking me for advice as an entrepreneur of what he should do and then me kind of getting involved and helping start to build it out. And, you know, we approached it in an entirely different way. I mean, obviously, I had a ton more experience, which was helpful. But I wouldn't say we figured it out either. I mean, we worked on it. So kind of where it's at right now is it's kind of in this like in between phase, this kind of beta phase, because what we really wanted to do was we wanted to raise money through venture capital, we wanted to not bootstrap it like I did, you know, well, and we wanted to try to scale faster, try to build a really solid team. Because I think it's really hard as an entrepreneur, for at least for me, to go from having a team to work on things with to then going back to being alone and trying to be everything. I don't know that I could do that again. And I know that I do sometimes, but I know that I work much more optimally when I can work with other really smart people that I can push, that can push me, that we can build something together. And so we really wanted to build Sun 
you know, to be bigger, to be faster, to be, you know, a company earlier than Wellen was. I mean, at Wellen, I had the luxury of being 19 and, you know, I didn't have to figure it out. I could live on, you know, sleep in my parents' house. <laughs> exactly. And that's a total luxury that I don't, I don't think my wife would be as excited about. <laughs> a little bit different scenario then. A hundred percent. And so I think, you know, basically what we did is we worked on the idea for about a year and a half and we did all that. We ended up getting into, uh, we got some angel investment, which really propelled us exponentially further. And then we started to gear up to doing like a pre-seed round with some VCs. We ended up getting into science, the incubator in Santa Monica, starting to really explore that. And it ended up that like, it just didn't really work actually. So I'm actually been going through kind of my second, I wouldn't say failed is the right word, but like it just, it didn't really work. And it didn't work for a variety of reasons, but we really never made it out of that beta phase because we never hit some key metrics that we really wanted to, to show that the product was going to be like exceptionally viable. And, but it was a total different learning experience going through that. And so, yeah, it was interesting. And so, I mean, with that, then going through that type of experience, how do you analyze that? You know, how do you look at that? How do you evaluate what it was, what you can learn from it? Because, uh, you know, people are going to, any entrepreneur is going to fail eventually. It's just a matter of time. But how do you then evaluate that situation? A lot of therapy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's true. So yeah. I'm not, that was, but like, yeah, a lot of therapy, realizing that it's okay to fail. I mean, it's hard because so many entrepreneurs and so many people never talk about all the failures that they have or all the struggles they have emotionally or just, you know, the depression that comes sometimes. And, you know, the highs are great. I mean, there's nothing better than succeeding. And everything's easy when it works. But it's really difficult when it doesn't work. And it's really lonely, too, because it's hard to relate to people that haven't necessarily experienced what it's like to fire an entire team and like sell your company or close your company or, you know, get rejected by people like VCs and and tell you your idea is the worst thing I've ever heard. I mean, it's brutal sometimes, but I think that just like, I think compartmentalizing a little bit and understanding that like, it's part of the journey and it's not always going to work out and that's okay. And it's not necessarily a race, I think is really important. Yeah, I was just gonna say that every, yeah, everyone has their own suffer going through their own way of dealing with it. And one thing that at USC, actually, we had an event that basically we had all these different founders come in and talk about their failures, because that's not something that people typically talk about. And just the feedback from it was amazing, because they're like, yeah, you never really had this chance to talk about that, because you're this entrepreneur who's starting this business and doing all these things, and you can't really show like, oh, yeah, I'm, here's my worst moment. And the feedback was incredible. I mean, everyone loved the event and it's called Fuck Up Nights, by the way. It's a hilarious event that like everyone loved and we're going to have it again next year. But it's so important to have that community where you can be open, vulnerable and talk to at least someone about it. Because if you're not an entrepreneur, you really don't necessarily understand it, especially if you haven't had a different level of failure. But it's something that is so important and needed for entrepreneurs. And I actually think the whole like founder depression are things are obviously not talked about as much but a real thing amongst many people who have these failed ventures and something has to be done eventually about that, which could be some type of opportunity business-wise as well uh, with that. And with your experience in entrepreneurship and having you know started Wellen and Sun and other things, like what do you now look for in an idea for a business? If someone wants to start a business, like what are you looking for? 
Yeah. You know, that's an interesting question because I'm actually, I'm in that mode right now. I mean, I'm doing the stuff with the Ford and Mammoth, but currently exploring, looking for that next thing. I think in the past, I was so excited and young and naive that I wanted to just jump into anything that sounded good, that had legs, and I was ready to like dive in headfirst. And I think that's okay sometimes, but I think the way I'm approaching it now is a little bit more reserved and diving in a little bit more. And I'm not afraid to give away my time for something that I think could turn into something later. And I think often a lot of people don't do that enough. And so I'm happy to explore what could be an interesting business with no strings attached with potentially a co-founder or potentially an early team to see if I would be one, a good fit for their team two if I even like the idea and if it has legs. But I think that the, the ideas that I'm looking for that I really want to be a part of are big ideas. I really think that I've had a lot of fun building, you know, the companies that I have and being involved in the projects that I have, but I really, I have this like desire and, you know, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, but to really be involved in a bigger company, a company that has more employees that we can really focus on building company culture that we can, you know, impact a lot of people with either the product or the service that maybe can change an industry. It doesn't have to be giant in terms of like some billion dollar thing, but just something that actually can have a meaningful impact that, you know, I can work with a good group of people, a large group of people that I can be a part of. And I don't know what that is. And I'm actually really struggling with that though, because that, you know, it's hard, I, like kind of floating in this realm of uncertainty. <laughs> well, right, because you have all this energy and passion that you, you know, you can use, right? And you have skills that you know you can use but you don't know what to use it for. That is a frustrating place to be in. Totally. And I'm kind of trying to harness that energy currently in exploring these ideas, but then also trying to mentor younger entrepreneurs and working with people that are working on their ideas. And I can help just be an advisor too and kind of help them navigate, maybe not make some of the same mistakes that I made, help them with connections. And I think that's been really fun and meaningful. Kind of like the studio model or the, you know, the venture studio model or an incubator model, but really informally for nothing, basically just getting involved and trying to kind of keep my brain working so that I don't lose it in the sense that I don't lose any of that uh, athleticism, the entrepreneurial <laughs> athleticism. <laughs> yeah, that's funny you mentioned that. There's a, another guy I had in the podcast, uh, Justin Resvani. He had a influencer marketing company called The Amplify. And he after he sold that, then then he decided to change his focus to like his health because he had really not taken care of that. And it's just been kind of incredible to see the transformation and how much it's been helping him. And then he's still kind of like, oh, I'm just going to start another company eventually. But in the meantime, he's like focusing on himself and really getting that set so that then he can in the future move forward to something else and not have the same like health issues, just completely disregarding his health like before. And so you never know how you go about that process. Everyone is different in that regard. And one of the things, though, with your entrepreneurial experience as well, I'm curious what type of resources, whether it be books or podcasts or conferences or mentors or blogs or anything that's been helpful for you along the way. When Wellen was at its peak of demise, and I was trying to decide if I wanted to sell it or if we were going to raise money, and it seemed just so bleak, a couple entrepreneurs and friends that I had in downtown LA, we created this Wednesday night dinner. It was kind of formal, actually, looking back, but informal is how it felt at the time. And yeah. all we did we met up at 6 p.m. every single Wednesday, sometimes for an hour, sometimes for three hours, sometimes for five hours. And we 
had dinner, we drank some wine, not like a crate. It wasn't like a binge drinking situation. It was like, you know, we had a <laughs> class or two. and we talk about the things that we wanted to work on. We talk about what our ideas were. We called it the brain trust. We still call it the brain trust. And, you know, I would say changed a lot about the way that I viewed myself and my value because I, you know, at 19, you start a company and you then sell your company and close it. And it's like, I've never gotten a job. I don't even know what someone would pay me. Like, I have no <laughs> idea what value is on the free market. I don't like what yeah. would I consult, like, you know, 20 bucks an hour, you know, right. which is like looking back, that's crazy low. And I think that that was really instrumental for me to have people that I could confide in outside of like close family and friends that I could confide in that were impartial, that were also working on entrepreneurial things that were having issues that I could actually provide impact and feedback and insight into that was meaningful to them, which ended up being really cathartic for me. Because sometimes you can't solve your own problems, but it's so easy to see what's wrong with everyone else. Yeah. There's it interesting how it goes. <laughs> yeah, isn't it crazy? And so that was, I think, really that was really instrumental for me in terms of kind of getting back out there and expanding my horizons a little bit and thinking differently. And we ran it, we did that of Wednesday night thing for 18 months pretty much. It's like every Wednesday that everyone was in town or whoever was in town. And really great. And everyone's kind of gone on to do really interesting things from that. Me, I started working on consulting and doing the four project. And one person opened an online wine retailer. One person did a, is doing a restaurant now. Two of them are doing a restaurant together. And then another person started doing massive consulting. It was really cool to see where people kind of came and went and how that really helped that group of support and feedback. That was essential. Yeah, and that's actually, you know, mentioning that, that is such a powerful thing for entrepreneurs or anyone really, honestly, but especially for entrepreneurs because they want to start stuff and, and build things. And that's one of the things that will be in the docket eventually for Just Go Grind is creating that sense of community and having those events. It was one of the things with the MBA, a little bit busy, but then getting to summer here, having more time, something I definitely want to do more of. So we'll have to chat. One of the things, uh, one of the last things I'm wondering here is just, is, are there any what are the biggest lessons or takeaways you've had so far in your entrepreneurial journey? I think the biggest thing is just not to dive into things, you know, headfirst too fast, you know, and it's stressful when stuff's not going on and you want to just find a project or a company or start something. And I think waiting for the right thing is super important. I also think a really big thing is that it's not a race. I didn't get that when I was in my 20s, which is funny to say, but it's true. You want to grow and you want to get bigger and you want to get faster and everything could be better. And there are some moments now looking back where the grass is, was really green. And honestly, we had something and we just didn't know it at the time. And I think it's really important to you know, know that what you have is okay. And just building on that is honestly hard enough let alone reaching the stars. And I think so often, you know, with all these like magazine articles and podcasts and, you know, all these places where they're featuring these billion dollar unicorns and all this stuff. I mean, that's so rare. And that is a tiny sliver of what entrepreneurship is as a career that it's, I think, really disheartening for people if that's what they are expecting to happen to them. And it doesn't. And that is like one percent of a quarter of a percent, you know, or maybe even less. I wouldn't even know the stat. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who and that happens to. And I think that that's really difficult. And I think that that kind of leads into my last piece, which is that 
I didn't really find mentors and advisors early enough. I realized that when I was like 29. I found people that could give me advice that were in the industries that I was in, that were people that I admired or that had experiences that I could get pointed advice from in certain areas. And when I was in my early 20s, I mean, I didn't have a single advisor who had ever been in apparel that was advising me on starting an apparel company. I would never give anyone the advice to do that anymore. And I think that that, you know, really finding those people was something that I think would have really changed the trajectory of my, of Wellen, of my earlier career, because I would have, there were points where I could have gotten advice that would have really helped me that now looking back is so simple, but I didn't even know to ask those questions. Yeah, and it just shows the importance of finding those mentors in some capacity, whatever that may be. I mean, we always see people hear about mentors, like who could that be? But even if someone who's doing what you want to do or someone who has some experiences is all you need to get started with. And you can approach them and find for many different ways, whether it be literally from school, alumni network, friends of friends, or whoever that may be. There are people out there, and like yourself, people out there who are often willing to spend some time with younger entrepreneurs, younger people who want to start things, they want to kind of give back. And so those people are definitely out there. So it's just a matter of pursuing them and seeing then, you know, who you can kind of link up with. And, you know, where can people go then to learn more about you and what you're doing and everything you're up to? Yeah, I don't really... I mean, it's an interesting question. I don't really keep a huge online presence. And that's intentional because I don't have a lot of time. I'd rather be focusing on, you know, in real life relationships and all, you know, that stuff, you know, that we were <laughs> But I would say I'm trying to get more involved in Twitter. And by trying, I mean, I'm pretty much just lurking and like following really interesting like business people and conversations, but occasionally like joining them. That's probably the place that I would post anything new I'm working on or someone could like DM me and you know, if they wanted to talk. Yeah. And I'll definitely link that. I'll definitely link that up as well in the show notes, justgogrind.com slash podcast. So make sure you have that. And we'll also link up the fort as well. So people can check that out. And Matt, thank you so much for the time today, man. Really enjoyed it. Oh, this was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And please, please leave a rating and review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great day.